G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. For some of us here this morning, we hear Peter's words to the wives there, don't we, at the end. Um, Submit yourselves to your own husbands, chapter 3, verse 1, and we recoil uh, a little bit for some of us. Uh, we recognise the spectre of, um, of abuse, at, le- at least uh, there in our own culture. Uh, is Peter really saying what we fear he might be calling these women to endure? And friends, I don't think he is, uh, and we'll come to that. Uh, for others of us here this morning, or indeed perhaps for the same people, we, we hear Peter's advice to the slaves. Um, submit to your master, um, and even to the harsh ones who by implication seem to be, at least at times, beating their slaves. And we recoil at that. And we wonder why Peter hasn't penned a few choice words for the masters. And friends, I just want to say, I think Peter shares your disdain for slavery, um, as I hope we'll see, we'll come to that. Um, and, And for others of us here this morning, again, perhaps only a few of us, who lived in a very different Europe not so long ago, Um, and who have perhaps heard Peter's words about submitting to human institutions uh, and governments and emperors and governors and so forth, and have heard Christians cite Peter's words there um, to tell Christians not to speak out against what their government's doing, against uh, to, to dissuade Christians from civil disobedience. Uh, No, you should just be peaceful, quiet citizens. Um, Friends, I don't think that's Peter's game here today either, um, as I hope we'll see. I think, what what is this section about? I think Peter is calling Christians who know that they don't belong in this world to live as Christ-like people in this world so that through Christ, more of the world might come to Christ. Do you see? I think that's the main burden of this passage, actually, as I I hope we'll see. I think that's what he's doing. Let me say it again. I think Peter is calling Christians who know that they don't belong, know that we don't belong in this world, to live as Christ-like people in this world, nevertheless, so that through Christ, more of the world might come to Christ. And so he goes, therefore, to the weakest to those who must submit, to the most vulnerable, to the least and the last. And he asks, will the world see something surprising and wonderful, something of Christ in your life, or will they see more of the same? So Peter, I think, deliberately goes to the the fringes, the edges, where life looks the most raw and the most risky, because if the world can see Christ there, As an example, by the way, for all of us Christians, well, of course, the world will see Christ in the rest of us, or at least should. That there are the ingredients for a powerful wife, for a liberated slave, for a peaceful society, or at least uh, the the seed of hope for it. How about we pray as we come to this um, delicate, but in, in many ways, beautiful and wonderful passage in God's word. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, some of us... Um, in this room come to passages like this uh, with our guard up and our defences at the ready and our heart rates already elevated. Would you please give us the grace 
to come to your word this morning with an awareness of Christ. We know that Jesus means good for us. We know that he means healing for us. We know that he has put himself in harm's way for us, not the other way around. So, Father, teach us of Jesus this morning and teach us to follow him, please, in this hard and harried world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If you look down at the text, could we just um, backtrack a few verses, actually? It's one of the challenges, one of the um, obstacles, hurdles, really, of dicing up a uh, one letter into many different parts to preach on. Um, There aren't always clean breaks. I'd like us to backtrack if we could. We started at verse 11, where Katie began reading to us, but I think it sets up, it takes up, rather, a contrast that began in verse 9. So we just need to backtrack a couple of verses. Christian, verse 9, are you aware, are you cognizant, are you, have you mastered the fact that you, together with all of the Christians around you, verse 9, that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you weren't a people, but now, You are the people of God. So through the gospel of Jesus, just by trusting in him, just through your faith of greater worth than gold, even though it perishes uh, when refined by fire, you, through faith in Christ, look at what you've become. Do you see there, verse 9? Chosen, royal, uh, holy, you weren't a people and now you are. It's quite spectacular, isn't it? More, more than just a people, you're a nation, out of darkness, into light, the people of God. Now can we hear the contrast? Verse 11, come with me there. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Ah, back there, rootless and homeless and landless, and under the emperor and governors. Uh, verse 12 tells us, back among the pagans who accuse you of doing wrong, even when sometimes you aren't doing wrong. Ah, we're back there. Do you see the contrast? The question of 1 Peter 2 and 3, the section that we're looking at this morning, is how does royalty, holy uh, people belonging to God, how does royalty carry itself when it is dressed in rags? That's the question of 1 Peter 2 and 3. And the answer is, It must carry itself like a king, like our king. Verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And so we're going to take the passage under three headings this morning uh, and then we're going to try and tease out some implications, some scenarios, what it might look like to take this on board in our Christian lives, even though we may not be um, slaves or uh, under Rome or um, wives or whatever it may be. So we're going to take the passage under three headings and then tease it out a little bit more. The three headings are the citizen, the slave and the spouse. The citizen, the slave and the spouse. Uh, We begin with the citizen. And the thought here, as you see it from verse 13 and following, is that Christians under the Roman state 
show the greatness of our God in just being great citizens, it seems to me, from that section. Would you agree? Now, the setting is important, and I think it's one of those ones where we've got to do a little bit of work to transport ourselves back into a first century setting because, honestly, living under the Roman state is a little bit different from living in a, a parliamentary democracy here in Australia. The setting's important. In the first century, please remember, um, every state had its religion, and if you lived in any given state, then you'd better serve their recognised gods. Because if you don't, you see, and everyone sees that you don't, and the crops failed this year, and everyone sees that you don't serve their gods, or the rains don't come this year, and everyone sees that you don't serve their gods, or a plague breaks out, or all of our sons die in battle. Do you see the implication? See, as God's slaves, chosen by the one true God, living as foreigners and exiles in the world, you better make sure that you are exemplary citizens in every respect that your conscience allows under God. God's slaves must be great Citizens, let's have a look together. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Now, are the Christians of, uh, what was it? Verse 1, no, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 1, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Are the Christians throughout that region, are they to be subversives in the main? Is that their posture, generally speaking, towards the state? After all, they, know, they owe nothing to Rome, do they? Certainly not their salvation. They don't belong here, in the dark, with the pagans, under their slander, among their evil, do they? We are royalty, are we not? We are chosen, a people belonging to God. Then show it, says Peter, by showing the goodness of your God who you call upon in the goodness that your state is looking for. You call on a God of goodness, so give yourself to goodness. That's the first little portrait there. Secondly, the slave. So the citizen first, then the slave. It's interesting that he's just used that word, actually. You Christians, you are slaves, all of you, all of us, slaves of a servant. And I don't think Peter is condoning slavery here by any measure at all. In fact, uh, Peter does this interesting thing, both with the wives and with the slaves here. Um, He addresses them directly, which might seem completely normal to us, because isn't that how you would address any normal human being, is you speak to them directly. Um, But the the thing that it does, it's countercultural in his day, in the first century. It dignifies them as human beings who can be instructed by a religious authority, do you see? In their day, if you want to tell a slave how to live, then you tell the master how to instruct him, do you see? If you want to tell a wife how to live, 
then you tell her husband what he should be telling her. That was in their culture. Peter says, no, no, I'll speak to them directly like normal human beings, thanks very much. It's interesting, isn't it? Just the little details. Verse 18, slaves. In reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And I think Peter is is very deliberate. Just a couple of verses beforehand, having referred to all of us, verse 16, as God's slaves, and then he turns to slaves and tells them how to suffer. Do you see they don't have a choice about whether to suffer or not. Being a slave in the first century, it wasn't the same as the uh, African slave trade, that's true, but still, those slaves didn't have a choice about being slaves. It's not a job. It wasn't employment. If they got sick of their boss, they couldn't just quit. In fact, if they ran away, then they'd be in trouble with the state and hunted by it, and so you're in that other category, aren't you? How does royalty carry itself when it is dressed in rags? It must carry itself like our king. Verse 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So friends, slaves of God here this morning, Peter is telling you how to live in these verses. Do you realise that? Uh, This is one of the kind of aha moments for me in this passage. It is a passage all about living as people, yes, of dignity and purpose and significance in a world before God who has chosen us and elected us. Here's the contrast. But the world doesn't acknowledge or care or notice or honour us or our God. And the message for us children of Christ is, well then, make sure, make sure you let not the apple fall far from the tree, Christian, O child of Christ. Uh, don't let the world see something different in you than you saw in your Lord. It's quite a challenge. Did he cling to his dignity? Did he fight tooth and nail for it? Did he fight for his honour as he went to the cross? Karen Jobes, uh, the, the woman, uh, the um, academic expert on 1 Peter, who I've been really enjoying reading recently, um, she draws out the two uh, metaphors that are there for us in verse 21. Um, really vivid, vivid images. I'd like to share them with you. Two images there. Um, she says, the Greek word translated example. All right, have a look at verse 21. Uh, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. 
The Greek word translated example was used to refer to a pattern of letters of the alphabet over which children learning to write could trace. Okay, you've seen those charts? A a pattern of letters of the alphabet over which children learning to write could trace. It suggests the closest of copies. English words such as example, model or pattern are too weak for Jesus' suffering. Jesus' suffering is not simply an example or pattern or model as if one of many. He is the paradigm by which Christians write large the letters of his gospel in their lives. It's quite a picture, isn't it? Are we doing it? There's the first image. Here comes the second one, also from verse 21. Uh, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And she says, for one cannot step into the footsteps of Jesus and head off in any other direction than the direction he took. And his footsteps lead to the cross, through the grave and onward to glory. Are we content, brothers and sisters, to lead that life, to trace our lives along the lines of Christ's life? O slave of God, chosen priesthood, royal, uh, sorry, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And that declaration, that's absolute, that's on view through this passage. It's, it's what does the world see in us? Uh, so in verse 12, we read, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Which I think means they see Christ in you, become Christians and glorify God in praises with us. At the end, verse 15, silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. I think I suspect it's referring to the same thing. Verse 24, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Isn't Peter saying, friends, people will learn the gospel of Christ dying for them as they see you living for him? and not living for your own dignity and retaliating and fighting tooth and nail and wrestling and getting one back. And so, thirdly, what have we seen? Citizens, slaves and spouses to wives and husbands. Wives, verse 1 of chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, here it is again, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, in this section, may I just make four observations? Four observations. Um, Number one, across the Bible, right across the Bible from actually the opening chapter of Genesis chapter 1, Um, through the the Old Testament stories, the stories of Israel and God's dealings with them in particular, not that Israel were perfect, but through God's dealings with them, uh, through their laws, through the songs of the Old Testament, uh, the Psalms, the Song of Solomon and so forth, through the teachings of Jesus, through the proclamation of the and writings of the apostles, 
what do we see? We see men and women afforded equal dignity as creatures made by their loving God, valued equally with the blood of Christ, sharing humanity equally together. That's number one. We see that right from the very beginning through to the very end. So Peter may mean many things here in this call to wives, but he cannot overturn the dignity of women in the plans and purposes and pattern of our God, and I don't think he means to. Uh, Second observation, uh, we see, again, right across the whole Bible, that the marriage relationship, when a man and a woman come together in marriage, in the design of God, there is a call on the husband to lay down his life in the service of his bride's spiritual good by leading her. And for her to warmly and humbly and intelligently, with all of her gifts, submit to her husband's leadership in a mutually supportive partnership, do you see? And now some of us may find that hard to um, come at, but it seems biblically pretty plain from beginning to end of the Scriptures. And we could talk about that some more um, if that would be helpful for you afterwards. Uh, it's interesting, Peter is, doesn't particularly argue for it, he kind of assumes that structure, I think, and that equality and dignity. Now, two more things. Thirdly, third observation, Greco-Roman society conceived of marriage quite differently in some ways. Greco-Roman society held that a wife belonged to her husband, um, not in the same way that a slave did, that wouldn't be quite fair of it, but certainly not as a peer, not as an equal. Um, She ought never to instruct him. Oh, he will instruct her. Um, Hence, Shouldn't Peter be telling the husband how to tell his wife how to live? (laughs) No, no, I'll address her as a human being. Thanks very much. She ought not to have friends outside of his friendship circle. Now, think that through in terms of a wife becoming a Christian when her husband isn't. What does that mean for church and all of the rest of it? Uh, hence, does she, uh, who does she think she is when she's scurrying out of the house, perhaps, all dressed up on a Sunday morning to meet with this royal priesthood, this chosen people, this people belonging to God? Do you see? Uh, fourthly and lastly, I don't think Peter has in mind anything particularly sinister or scary in the relationships that he's imagining here. I think he, he definitely has a non-Christian husband in mind, doesn't he? Um, That's just there in black and white, actually, uh, in verse 1. That's clear enough. But probably, I would suspect, reading between the lines, one who loves her, at least. Um, Yes, almost certainly one who doesn't afford her the dignity that she ought to have as an image-bearer of God, a child of the risen Christ, a, a person for whom Christ bore the wounds of sin and shame, just as he did for men. But there's not much she can do about that. Um, Yes, in verse 6, if you have a look at the end of verse 6, it speaks of fear. Peter mentions fear. What's going on there? Is that a sign of something sinister and scary? Maybe that raises the hackles a little bit. But no, friends, if you look at verses 5 and 6 there, it seems to me that if Sarah is the model, going back to the stories in Genesis... I suspect fear in the wife, in this instance, is fear of life outside of the home, if you get what I mean. So for Sarah, she didn't fear Abraham. 
Um, blockhead though he was, time after time. No, I think she feared, who did Sarah fear? She feared Pharaoh, Genesis chapter 12, when they went down to Egypt. She feared Abimelech, Genesis chapter 20. Um, Submitting to her husband's lead in her setting, Sarah's setting, was downright scary at some points in her life. Not because he was scary, I don't think that's the portrait that Peter's trying to deal with, but because life in the world is scary. And may I say, just as an aside, and quite apart from the situation that Peter is addressing, um, Peter's not saying, stay put. He's not saying, just take it. He's not saying, you mustn't speak up. And if you need to, and if you need even help to be able to speak up, then can I just say, we will listen as your church leaders. You're not alone. We are here for you. And we don't want you to be alone. Now back to Peter and the situation that he is addressing. And these wives, in loving though flawed marriages, where perhaps it feels like he is squashing your faith, where he's jealous for your attention as you dress for church on Sunday morning to go and hang out with your friends at church that aren't part of his friendship circle. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, um, so like Jesus in an imperfect world, Submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. And then lastly, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with all respect, sorry, with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Weaker, how exactly? Well, socially, at the very least, we've seen that, haven't we? Um, She doesn't have the influence, she doesn't have the opportunity, she doesn't have the standing, oh, first century man, that you have. Um, Physically, almost certainly. So will you be men, will you be husbands, who wield your strength and your power, not for yourself, but solely to serve? Do you see the pattern of Christ there? She would be safe if he did. And if he doesn't, then what does Peter say at the end? He needn't think that God will bother listening to him. That's kind of what it says, isn't it? She's your, you know, heir with you of the gracious gift of life, so treat it that way, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Friends, as, um, as citizens, as slaves, as spouses, how do the weak display the wonder of their God? 
How must royalty carry itself when it is dressed in rags? We must carry ourselves like our king. So the practical question becomes, where in my life, where in your life, do I face a choice between fighting for my dignity, my royalty, my standing, my recognition, and displaying the death of Jesus? Where in my life do these metaphors start to come home, or these circumstances, these life circumstances, where does it start to come home? Where in your life might you, might we, write large the letters of the gospel in our lives? Um, I've just got a few uh, suggestions, a few thoughts to conclude, um, but perhaps you could tease it out some more afterwards. And these are just four scenarios, four suggestions that may be applicable to you, but maybe they're not. Maybe they don't squarely um, hit you where they need to, and you, but they give, I think, a little bit of a sense of the flavour. So firstly, um, I think I am tempted to fight for my dignity as a parent... Uh, when I discipline my own kids. So fathers especially, when your little ones stand up to you, by which I mean stand up against you, um, speak rudely to you, um, slight you in some way, disrespect you in some way, how do you react then? Um, And I'm not sure that I have the complete solution, but I do want to say if our kids know that dad will come down on them like a ton of bricks if I disrespect him, are they learning the pattern of the cross from their dad at that point? I think we need to check ourselves, fathers. Uh, Practically speaking, it might mean a conversation with your wife, apart from the kids, about um, her going into bat for you when the kids disrespect you so that you don't have to or so that you don't even feel that you need, so that you can just be vulnerable and take it so that they can learn the pattern of the cross from their dad. And by the way, make sure that you then go into bat for your wife, won't you? It's just a maybe, one scenario. Second scenario, uh, maybe you've poured in hours at work and you have turned out something finally that you're, actually, you're pretty proud of, actually. You've done a good job. Um, you're proud. Who gets the credit in this particular scenario? Your boss does. Your boss takes the credit this time around, maybe again. Um, or perhaps you've saved your boss from considerable embarrassment, very public, just a stupid blunder, but you were the one who pointed it out to her. How do I respond when no one knows that it was me who pointed it out, who spared her the embarrassment? Now, I'm sure that you know who you can go and talk to, so who will then go and tell it to absolutely everyone else. My question is, do you have to? Do you have to? Just check yourself. Um, Third scenario, you've come together, a family do, with your siblings. Your siblings who you love, for the most part. And like clockwork, here it comes again. That little comment, that little barb that reminds everyone there for the thousandth time that you're the slow one or you're the overweight one, or you're the one who never lived up to Dad's expectations, or you're the ugly one, or you're the black sheep, or whatever it is. Whatever the stereotype is that you know and your siblings can wind you up on it, and you know where it goes from here and it ain't pretty. I just want to ask, is there another way? 
Your dignity may have been slighted. You may be royalty chosen, God's special possession. Is there a way to show the character of our king when royalty is dressed in rags? Because fourthly and lastly, our final scenario, I'd like to conclude with this scenario. It's the scenario of Christ. It's the scenario that means that you and I are no longer just victims. We are conquerors. We are survivors where once we were sinners. This is Christ. Verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, what a friend we have in Jesus. Please take our pride, our misplaced sense of self-importance and take our lives to write the gospel of Jesus in new ways, scrubbing out old patterns and ruts. We pray it, Father, that more might see Jesus and seeing him might find themselves chosen and beloved and treasured royalty in your house. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.